everyone. Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast with the Grove Church. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and really glad that you have joined us. And if you are, if you've been around for the last several sessions, we are in the middle, actually very much near the end now, of a series called Panorama of the Bible. We borrowed some material from Fellowship Bible Church in Northwest Arkansas. And essentially what it does, it kind of helps us walk through kind of the chronological story of the Bible. It helps us put kind of the history pieces together, which then just kind of allows, you know, other books of the Bible to kind of make sense because we can kind of fit them into kind of their historical context because there's a lot of parts of the Old Testament that are not written in chronological order. And it just kind of helps us to kind of have a, a guideline to, to to put it all together. And so this is uh, session 10 of that. So if this is the one you are first finding, I encourage you to go back and start at part one and kind of work all the way through. You know, it doesn't really do a whole lot of good to try to put together something to help you understand the historical order and you jump in the middle. It's just another way to get you confused. But to kind of sum up where we are right now, again, this is session 10. We started at number one, the kind of the prologue to the Bible, which is Genesis 1 through 11, which has the story of Adam and Eve, creation, Noah, the Tower of Babel. And then the patriarchs, um, which is Genesis 12 through 50. The book of Job, um, even though he's not technically Jewish, kind of fits around in that chronology as well. But in Genesis 12 through 50, you've got um, kind of the beginning of the story with God choosing Abraham to become the the founder of God's chosen people. And he has this promise uh, to bless Abraham and to bless the whole world through him. And that blessing passes to his son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, passes to his younger son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel that we will read a whole lot about all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Part three is redemption and wanderings, kind of the story of Moses, if you're familiar with that, Prince of Egypt, uh, Ten Commandments, that stuff. Um, They find themselves, the Jewish people find themselves enslaved to Egypt, and God raises up Moses to help them get out. And he goes, confronts Pharaoh, they get out, and he takes them to Mount Sinai where God starts to reveal the law to them. They kind of have this worship moment there. They get to the promised land. They reject God initially and are scared to go in, so they wander around in the wilderness for a while. Um, until all the adults of that uh, all the adults of that time pass away and give the next generation a chance, and that gives us Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then Moses passes away, and the leadership passes to Joshua, and they finally, at the second time coming to the Promised Land, they they do trust God and conquer the land and reclaim the land that God has promised them. That's number four, conquest, which covers the book of Joshua. And so once they take the land, they go into this cycle that is often called the sin cycle or the redemption cycle, and we just called it the judges cycle. And what we what we find here is they're, they're not governed by a king yet. They just kind of have these judges that kind of, and prophets that kind of represent God to the people. God is their king, and everything's going fine for a while, and then they start to turn away towards other gods. And then when they do that, God punishes them, and then during this punishment, which is almost always some country or other people conquering them. They come and and bad things happen to them. They reach out in repentance. God raises up a deliverer, uh, a judge of sorts to free the people, and then they repent and get back in good relationship with God. And this cycle just continues on forever uh, throughout the book of Judges. And honestly, it didn't really end in Judges. It's currently going on in most of our lives to some degree right now. 
And historically, the books there are the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a story that comes right after Judges. It's kind of almost like a King David prequel. It's just a really cool story of, of someone who's outside the Jewish faith and their faithfulness to her mother-in-law and who ultimately then becomes like the great-great-grandma of King David. Then the people ask for a king, even though, you know, uh, the prophets tell them not to. Prophet Samuel tells them not to. They say, we want one. We want to look like everybody else. God says, it's going to go bad for you, but I'm going to give you what you want. Part six is they have a kingship, but it's a united kingdom. And there are three kings under which they have a united kingdom. And that is Saul, David, and Solomon. And first and second Samuel, first Kings, first and second Chronicles, most of the poetry books fall under this timeline. But Solomon, I mean, they, the, the the kings, they just they just had all sorts of problems, very, very selfish, very conquering focused rather than God focused, a lot of sexual immorality. And ultimately the kingdom was split after Solomon. His son, uh, Rehoboam, was a total jerk and really rejected God. And the kingdom was split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah had some good kings, the northern kingdom of uh, of Israel had nothing but bad kings. And so we got first and second Kings, second Chronicles. A lot of the prophetic books will, almost all the prophetic books will fall um, into this timeline. It's very important for them for you to just kind of look at the little intro. It'll tell you, it'll tell you who was king, who was talking, who he's talking to and can kind of help you set the uh, chronology there. And then after a season, uh, the both kingdoms are taken into exile. That's number eight. Um, the exile, Ezekiel, Daniel, a bit of Jeremiah is in there. They are conquered from their land, and God says that even though you're conquered and taken out, we're gonna we're gonna bring you back. Which happens number nine, the return from exile. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are kind of your main books there. And essentially, God is bringing them back to the land that He's promised, even though they are still a conquered people. And then during the silent years that kind of happen after that, there you know we there you have you know the uh, the Babylonians conquered them, and then the Persians conquered them, and then and then the Greeks, and then they're free for a little bit, and then the Romans conquer them, and and then in that timeline, it's kind of a four hundred year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which gets us here to part ten, where we'll be talking about the life of Jesus. And part 10, again, there's a 400-year gap between the last prophet, which is Malachi, and the, the birth of Jesus. And so we're talking about the life of Jesus. It's one of those things like, like I don't want to insult anybody who's listening here. On the one hand, I think it's, it's probably of these chronological pieces, it's the one that we're most familiar with. But at the same time, I want to make sure we kind of understand kind of where it falls into history and kind of what the storytelling is. And I don't want to assume anything. It's one of the things we don't, we do at the Grove is we don't want any, any, any amount of knowledge to feel like it's, you know, you know, it's there, there are no, there are no dumb questions, I guess what we're saying. So the life of Jesus in this section of the Bible is in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four books are, are the four gospels and gospel just simply just means good news. And so it's just kind of a, a term that was used to describe a telling of the story of who Jesus is. And there are four of them, and it maybe you have been confused, where you read through Matthew and you read about Jesus, and then it's, you go to the next book, Mark, and it seems like it starts over. And then you go to Luke, and it seems like it starts over again. You go to John, it seems like it starts over again. And especially between the first three, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a lot of similarities. And then John, on the other hand, is very different than the other three. And so um, it's important for us to understand that those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really are telling the same story, but from a different point of view with a different author and really with a different purpose. And so each one of them was written by an apostle or basically an assistant to one of the apostles. You have Matthew, who is one of the 12 apostles, and John, who also is one of the 12 apostles. Mark was kind of the right-hand man to Peter, and Luke was a right-hand man to Paul. And we even understand Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, which we'll talk about in section 11, um, he was with Paul probably while he was writing this. And so they're all written from the perspective of one of the apostles, and they're all very, they're all, they have, again, they have some similarities, but they're different in their purpose. And so it's important for us to understand this. So you read Matthew, it's kind of one of the longest ones. And it was really written from the perspective of really talking to Jewish people and was really representing Christ as just kind of like, hey, this is the, pro- this is the king of Israel that was promised to us. So it has a very Jewish focus. And so you will just see over and over and over again, as it was written, as it was written, just as it was prophesied, just over and over again, like a real apologetic, a real explanation of, hey, I'm going to connect these events in Jesus's life to these specific prophecies that were made about the coming king, about the coming Messiah, so that you'll know that Jesus is who this is. And again, it is one of your longer gospels and kind of is kind of highlighted by a lot of really, really long sermons. And so it has a much more of a, of, a, of a teaching, like here's the things that Jesus said, and then connecting him to um, the Old Testament. Now, the book of Mark is far and away the shortest one. It is, it is, it is your action-packed. It is your, if you were going to do a make-for-TV movie out of the Gospels, you probably would go to Mark. It would be the shortest one. It would have the most action in it. Does it have a lot of the, the longer teachings? And so, again, it's kind of addressed more towards a, a Gentile audience, again, and um, its real focus is on, on miracles the thing, and the things that Jesus did. And so then by it's connecting him then to, to God, like he is, he is doing, he is representing God in what, in what he does. And you see the compassion of Jesus, the, the love of Jesus, played out in Mark. And again, it's very action-packed. I mean, you'll just see, you'll see this phrase a lot. And, and, and immediately Jesus, da, 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 da. And then Jesus, da, 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 da. And immediately he went, da, da, da. And just that kind of action-packed story to story. The book of Luke kind of functions more, again, I don't know if you know the word apologetic, but just kind of a defense. It's kind of also written to, it's written to Greeks. And you see one particular person that he's addresses in his kind of his little preamble there, a guy named Theophilus. And he's trying to convince a guy that, that Jesus is the, the son of God. And you see a lot of, in, in Luke, a lot of the parables, a lot of the, you know, just kind of the more figurative teaching of Jesus, which would have been incredibly appealing to this, you know, to a Greek Gentile audience. And then John, again, those first three, you'll, you'll find them very similar. A lot of the same stories worded the same way. And it seems like John just has a completely different, different point of view, which he absolutely does. And if you look at John chapter 20, John gives you the very specific reason why he wrote the book. He says, man, I could have put any number of things in here, but the things I put in here, I've written so that you can believe that Jesus is the son of God. 
and because believing he's the son of God, that you can have eternal life in his name. More than the first three, I would say John is a gospel written to non-Christians. If you want to learn most a lot about what Jesus taught and what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, what his teachings were, what his beliefs were, you know, how he instructed people, how he wanted them to live life, you will find a lot more of that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You read the book of John, you're going to hear just a lot of personal interactions that Jesus had with a lot of different people. A, uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who was caught in adultery. Some of these stories may be familiar to you, stories that you aren't going to find other places, but they are Jesus interacting with people who aren't in the faith, who don't really believe and trust in Jesus and the message that he had to them. And as you can imagine, a message that Jesus is giving to someone who does not have faith and how he is wanting someone with faith to behave are two completely, are just two completely different um, um, things that he has to say. And so it's not that these gospels are contradictory. In fact, they are very complementary. And depending on what it is you are wanting to learn and discover about Jesus and who you are, you pick the different gospel. I always recommend for someone who is not a believer or very, very new to the faith to start in John because it really kind of solidifies kind of what it means to move from someone who has faith in Jesus to, some, to who doesn't to someone who does and kind of the, the initial things that you need to understand and believe. And then if you want to get just a good snapshot of, of Jesus and what he was about, what he did, then you read Mark. If you're really interested in the connection to the Old Testament, you read Matthew. If you really just kind of want kind of what feels like a more balanced historical perspective, then you read the book of Luke. And you'll find all of them, they have incredible value. And again, they work very well together. And you just want to understand, hopefully, kind of which one, which one meets what need. And so really quickly here, we're going to kind of walk through the timeline of kind of what is going on in Jesus's life. Jesus, you know, the first stories we really have are about, you know, they kind of predate him a little bit about the, the prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, who was his cousin, who was the forerunner for who Jesus is going to be, kind of the one who was supposed to announce. Um, it, was kind of, it was predicted that someone who was like Elijah, who was, who was kind of just a wild man, who was kind of again, what John the Baptist was, is there going to be this prophet kind of in the same vein as Elijah, who's going to come and declare, hey, that the Messiah is coming. And we hear about, you know, his parents, Zechariah, and um, and then how they um, they they get they get a, a prophecy that Elizabeth. I dropped it. Dropped it as Zechariah and Elizabeth. You heard, you probably noticed he didn't say both parents' names, and then he's going to just try to get out of it. But I'm back. I'm back. It popped in my brain. Um, and and you know, prophesied that he's going to come. Who's going to be? You get that story. Then you get uh, the angel visiting Mary and telling about that Jesus is going to come. And then we have the birth of Jesus. And I mean, you probably know at least sections of the story with the shepherds and, you know, and all, all the cool things and being born in a, in, a, in a stable. And all of this probably happened around between the years three and five BC. And you're like, bro, it can't have happened in three to five BC because BC means before Christ. And, you know, he came at like, um, he, came, he came like at like, like year one, right? And it's like, I mean, you know, anyways, yeah, the monks did the best that they could to try to figure out exactly what 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 the day was, but we'll just say he was born around between three and five BC. 
And we don't get a whole lot about Jesus as a kid. We get him being anointed at the temple when he was just a little bitty baby. Fast forward, you get a story of him when he's about 12 years old. I guess I go back. The wise man story, he was probably about, he was probably about two there. We, we tied into the nativity scene because it's just really cool, but it probably happened when he was about two years old. And then he goes to uh, you know, the, the, the bad guys are trying to get him because they hear the Messiah has been born and the, mad, the, the wise men are coming there. And so he runs, he goes to Egypt, has to hide there for a while. He comes back after the threat has kind of passed. Fast forward to when he is about 12, he goes, he's kind of, kind of reaching adulthood and can now go to the temple. And he goes there with his parents. And as they're heading back to back home, he kind of stays and starts arguing with the teachers, but they don't realize he's gone. They thought he was with somebody else. And so they, they left their kid at the temple, which you know, how, how many of us haven't left our kids at church before? I mean, it's just a very, very normal thing to happen. And they did. So they, they go back to find him. And, and, they're, and, the, and, the, and the leaders there are just astounded by how much he knows. His parents are mortified. I mean, come on, bro. You're supposed to be here with us. Anyways. And then we get this really cool verse, Luke 2.52, which is going to tell us, it tells us the only thing that we know about Jesus from the ages of 12 to approximately the age of 30. It says, Luke 2.52, says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. And so that's what Jesus is about for the next 18 years. He is, he is growing in favor. He is, he is maturing physically. He is, he is growing in his favor with people. Basically, he is becoming a man. And it's a really cool thing. Just think about that, that Jesus who is God become a man is 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 maturing in the same way that that people do and it really is kind of a theologically blow mind blowing kind of experiment to think about God become a man God become a person but this person is having to mature emotionally and socially and physically it's mind blowing but that is in our theological podcast which I'm sure you can find if you go back there you could look you can find our Christology podcast about the dual nature of Jesus. Just go back there and search. However one searches on your particular podcast app. And one interesting note, we never really get this said specifically that Joseph has died, but we never hear about Joseph again after Jesus starts his public ministry. And there's several times that Mary's there. And at the end, when Jesus is dying, he tries to find somebody who will take care of his mom, the kinds of things that you wouldn't do if Joseph were still alive. And so one of the things I feel like, and one of the reasons why Jesus, you know, hung around at home so long before he kind of went into public ministry was he was taking care of his mom and waiting for his younger brothers to be able to get old enough to where they could take care of his mom, which is a really cool thing, again, to imagine about Jesus has this incredible, powerful ministry to, to tell the word about God, to save the world through his death, but ultimately... I don't know, delayed's not the right word. It's all part of God's plan, but seemingly delayed anyway. Um, and so that he could do a good job as a son taking care of his mom. I just love that. And so he starts his ministry again when he is around 30 years old. And so he's not really very well known at first. And um, he, he's in, he goes to the wilderness for a while. He has noticed he, John the Baptist is talking about him. And finally, they kind of connect face to face. He's baptized by John. And during that time, he kind of be, he, during that time, he kind of becomes notable. I mean, John the Baptist has been on the scene for you know several months now, and has caused a lot of problems uh, with with the people that you know the political leaders that didn't like what he was saying, and and he's kind of stirring the pot and is very well known. And he then kind of passes the mantle to Jesus. This is the one I've been telling you about, and he says, "I'm going to decrease, and this guy's going to increase." And we see that 
we see his no, Jesus' notoriety and really his popularity begin to rise to where he's starting to attract really, really large crowds for a lot of his miracles and his teaching. And as his popularity increases, you can well imagine what happens is, is that the power structures aren't really particularly happy about it. Now, all of a sudden, this isn't just some wandering nomadic teacher. This is somebody who has a, who seems to have enough of a following that he becomes a threat to the local political and religious infrastructure and leadership. So there's a lot more opposition. And with that opposition, the popularity obviously is going to decrease. When it's, when, when it's cool to see Jesus and to hear about him and to get fed and to see cool miracles, but all of a sudden, if aligning yourself with Jesus is politically and personally problematic, then you're just going to see the crowds get a little bit smaller. The, the, the breadth of his influence um, is beginning to shrink, but the depth of his influence and his disciples continues to grow. And by the time the this opposition kind of reaches its peak, really the people who would really be considered followers of Jesus, you know, kind of in the in the just a few dozen. We think about the 12 disciples, and then probably there were about 70 really committed people. And so we go from a guy who seems to be leading a movement of thousands of thousands of people to just it really just becomes a few dozen. And so, and then kind of the, the arc of the story is heading from Jesus kind of being this wandering teacher in the wilderness to making his way towards Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, we have what's kind of known as the Passion Week or the last week of Jesus um, being alive. It starts on Palm Sunday. And depending on kind of how you're, it was taught, it was like, and there's thousands of people out there with palm branches waving. Like there wasn't, it was a really mixed bag. I mean, his followers were out there and really excited. Again, a few dozen people and a few dozen people with palm branches at the city gate can cause quite a stir. And it, but there was also, for as many of them that were there, there was there was at least you know one angry religious or political leader there was something you need. These people need to shut up. This is not cool. And um, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, is teaching in and around there, and and the problems. And the controversy around what he's saying just continues to increase and increase. Meanwhile, one of his disciples, a guy named Judas, is really wanting to push Jesus to kind of, let's, let's declare war. He really kind of had more of a zealot's mindset. And when he thought of Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the king, Jesus being the son of God, really thought of him as someone who was going to push the envelope politically. But it seemed to be that Jesus was conflict averse, really, when it came to political action. He would kind of spar with them theologically, but really wasn't taking that step. And so he betrays Jesus and gives up his private location. And it really is, no matter how you look at it, it's an act of betrayal. But really, most likely from Judas's perspective, he, was, he didn't really understand who Jesus was trying to be and was trying to light a fire to make something happen that Jesus didn't want to happen, which is to start a political revolution. But in the process, he did initiate the thing that Jesus did come to do, which was to die as a sacrifice for his people. And so then the Passion Week happens. Um, he is arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has multiple trials. He is tortured. He is ultimately sentenced to death. He carries his cross and is executed on, the, on a Friday, on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday being the third day. On the third day, he comes back to life. He teaches, um, has some few appearances with apostles, a few other people, teaches them a few more things, gathers together one, his people one last time, um, 
gives them the great commission, which we will talk about in section number 11, kind of what they need to be about after they go. And then Jesus goes up into heaven. And that happens probably around, you know, 33 AD. So Jesus, he was born a little bit before year one, um, comes into ministry about 30. It's probably about three, four, five, you know, three, three or three and a half so years. He is, um, he's doing his teaching, which then leads us to the Easter story, the Passion Week, death and resurrection, right? I just find it interesting. I mean, I'm just I'm just sitting here in a podcast studio, right? I find it interesting just trying to summarize the life story of Jesus in a small podcast. And like, you just, it just, it just feels a little insulting. Like there's so many awesome things that he said, so many awesome things that he did. But again, this is more of a historical podcast to kind of put the pieces together. And so I think it's important as you're reading these four history books, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to kind of be able to put the stories into this context of Jesus kind of moving from obscurity to increasing popularity, that popularity calling, causing some problems. So there's an increased opposition as his popularity goes down. And then the whole time, it seems like there is a journey, like he's got his mind and his heart set on going to Jerusalem, where he knows one thing is going to happen, where he's going to be arrested and killed, where his disciples, especially Judas, are thinking something different is going to happen. It's going to be the spark of a political rebellion that never happens. But instead, he's arrested, killed, resurrected, and commissions his people, and then ascends into heaven. So, um, I hope that you kind of enjoyed a very, again, mildly embarrassing uh, brief summary of the life of Jesus and what he did and kind of how these four Gospels are put together and kind of how they're different, how they're the same. If you have any questions about any of that, always feel free to reach out to me, charlie at thegrovechurch.org. And as always, man, if you want to know more about Jesus, the best thing to do is come to church, and we would love to see you. We'd love to see you on Sunday morning at the Grove, where two services, 9 and 1030. Um, if you can't do that because you're not local, we are always streaming our second service, our 1030 service. You can join us online. And you can find out all the information about all of that you need to at thegrovechurch.org slash connect. Again, this is Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there. Thank you so much for joining us.